Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello, welcome to the third episode of the Mango TV podcast. We have my friend Daniel Pinchbeck, who's a writer and author. Mangusa Production produced a documentary based on um, his book, 2012, The Return of Quest Coato. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, thanks, Jack. Good to see you. We're, we're privileged to see you these days. Thank you very much. <laughs> so let's start first with the, you know, they say the 30,000 feet view, but I would say even more. Imagine you are a faraway planet and you are a very intelligent alien and you have been following the history of humankind for the last million years. What, um, what do you see, this blue planet spinning around? How do you think we're doing as humans? Um, yeah, I guess I, there have been times when I felt like very, like, strident and like I had all the answers or whatever, but I'm not really in one of those times right now. <laughs> Um, I mean, you know, we have a lot of people on the planet. Uh, we have a lot of problems, I guess. We have, um, yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of new concerns and some old concerns. But generally speaking, you think um, we've been evolving the last two, three thousand years, 10,000 years, 50,000 years? I mean, I've, you know, I've looked at that in, in different ways. Like um, I wrote a book called 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, and We looked at a philosopher, I looked at a philosopher called Gene Gebser, who wrote a book called um, The Ever-Present Origin, and kind of like very Germanic way of looking at things. He looked at like the evolution of consciousness in terms of these different structures that reach a certain point, then there's like a crisis, there's like a forces like a mutation to a new form of consciousness. So he, you know, sort of enumerated the past ones. There was like the aboriginal or the archaic structure of consciousness, and there was kind of the magical tribal consciousness, and there was the mythological, kind of more like a psychical vision. Then we came into the mental, rational uh, structure of consciousness where, you know, we became very obsessed with like space and matter and science and technology and empiricism. And Gebser, who was writing back in the 50s, thought that we were, you know, slowly approaching the end of the mental, rational structure, and it was going to force like a mutational break, you know, in, during a crisis into the next type of consciousness, which he called integral or aperspectival. And yeah, so these different structures of consciousness are different ways of, you know, realizing our relationship to space and time and, and so on. And we have different abilities and different structures, you know, so I, I still like that map. I mean, Ken Wilber was a philosopher who, who used Gebser a lot. So it does feel to me that we're, you know, we're like seeing the end of the sort of mental rational, like we've, we've been we've been looking at time in a very linear way. And we've been looking at progress in a very quantifiable way. And, and now, you know, at least, you know, sort of the elites of society are beginning to question, you know, the direction and, and you know, yeah, maybe, so maybe something is evolving, you know, maybe maybe we went too far with the with the enlightenment and the sovereignty of reason. And so now there's a sort of a balancing towards more like spirit and um, and the more intuitive mind than the than the rational abstract analytical mind yeah i mean uh, this you know course i'm doing right now on kind of like ideas of continuity of consciousness after death you know and, and looking at how like you can't really even talk about that unless you interrogate like scientific materialism uh which is the sort of reductive idea that you know consciousness is, is just an expression 
of physical matter, of like the complexity of the brain and so on. So, um, yeah, but now, yeah, through quantum physics, we actually have kind of a way of understanding, you know, the nature of reality, which is different, that accords actually with a lot of mystical traditions and schematic traditions. So it still feels like we're, we're trying to break out of this, you know, obstruction or this logjam of, of the uh, reductive materialism. And yeah, that could lead to a lot of changes. I mean, you know, the scientific materialism was, you know, also led to like consumerism, kind of this idea that if this life is it and there's nothing beyond it, then you might as well just try to get whatever you can for yourself and your family and so on. So, you know, if if we went back into kind of an understanding of these like larger cycles that were, you know, participating in larger cycles, maybe you know, there's good evidence for, you know, reincarnation and so on, then, then, then maybe it begins to shift our whole way of, of, you know, understanding ourselves and that actually leads to changes in our structures of society and education and, uh, you know, technology and so on. It seems very difficult, though, to try to, in such, you know, the society is still very much based on secular materialism and, and reductionism and how, how, how can we structure a life for ourselves, in, you know, which is participatory with society but is a little bit detached from the current paradigm. Do you have a, a view on that? Is he, how are you coping in, a, you know, being in New York, for example? You know, Yuval, Yuval Arari says that, um, you know, people accuses him to be, to be a pessimist because he thinks that humans inevitably fell into power structure. And he says that that happens when you have to organize a few hundred thousand millions of people. And he, he says that, you know, in order to really live a non-self-centered consumeristic life the only way is really to live in, in, in society, in, in, in small community, mm -hmm. like 150 people where you know That's the famous Dunbar number Yes. Right. <laughs> but so how do you see this evolution to this, the, to this phase of less materialistic and more and more empathic more less concentrated just on this life what is the advice you have for people to try to explore this domain um, yeah, I mean, you know, I've always, I always struggle with like trying to give advice for people because everybody's so different. I mean, I mean, I'm from New York City. I feel like an Eskimo back in my igloo here in a way. Like, and I, you know, I feel a lot of connection to like the cultural history of, of, of the city and the different like, you know, artistic and cultural movements that happened here. And it was actually really good for me to be away for like 18 months because I was in like Austria and then I was in uh, Mexico and coming back, I actually feel a lot of like tenderness for the city and the city feels like kind of like layers have been peeled away like people feel very like authentic and kind of open there's this kind of you know the pandemic and all the riots and, and trump and all this stuff has led to a kind of like kind of i don't know like a beautiful uncertainty you know it, it, you don't feel anymore that people are like you know as interested in the old games you know they don't even know what the new game is you know but they know that something is is shifting you know mm -hmm. so it feels like a great time to be in the city i mean yeah, I've thought about it. Like, I just, you know, in my mid-50s now, I mean, I feel I'm more of an urban person. I don't really, you know, I have friends who are building, you know, off-the-grid communities in um, Costa Rica and in uh, New Zealand and so on. You know, and, and I respect that. You know, they have a whole vision, but I, I don't know if that's going to be my path. Maybe I'm just going to, like, you know, be more of an ur urban person, you know. I mean, I, I loved Mexico. I was super curious about... Um, that society. But I mean, I also like, frankly, you know, I mean, I started screaming about the ecological emergency, like way back. And even my first book, Breaking Open the Head, I was like, what are we going to do? This is like, fucked. And I was hoping that, 
kind of the um, you know psychedelic, the psychedelic awakening would bring about a reckoning with the ecological crisis. And that, I don't think, has happened. You know, I, mean, you know, I guess in the, in the 60s, like Timothy Leary had a lot of hopes for LSD as being this tool that would awaken the masses and change you know, the direction of human society. You know, when I was exploring it, there was like ayahuasca and iboga were like, you know, this new, new you know, kind of new phenomena that seemed to have the ability to um, shift people into, into a more ecological awareness. But, um, and I, I know I have seen, you know, people change. I mean, you know, you've changed, you know, like I've seen a lot of people, you know, with, you know, strong, with a lot of resources, you know, think, re- rethink how they're using their money and what they want to, you know, what they want to di- direct it at and how they want to, you know, build and so on. But it, it, it does feel like the, um, you know, the cycle of destruction, you know, the Kali Yuga, whatever it is, these types of energies are um, kind of unstoppable at this point. So, 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 you know, probably we're going to see some kind of like meltdown, you know, and hopefully some kind of reconfiguration. I mean, I recently um, reposted this, uh, you know, kind of presentation and an interview I did with Christopher Bosch, who um, wrote some really interesting books. One was called LSD in the Mind of the Universe. Another one was called uh, Dark Night, Early Dawn. And he put himself on this, like, I don't think, I don't know anybody who's done as much, like, you know, 75 high dose LSD sessions with a therapist. And as part of those experiences... In, in the course of 20 years. Yeah, exactly. And, and part of those experiences, he had a lot of um, kind of visions of the near future. And he saw humanity kind of going through this, you know, initiatory, you know, dismemberment and, and rebirth and, you know, things, everything like falling apart. And then that leading to like new mycelial connections, kind of like a new web of consciousness forming, you know, and maybe in, in smaller communities. So, you know, I, I totally, you know, could see that happening. I mean, you know, breakdowns are not fun. I mean, you know, it's not, it wouldn't be fun to be living in Syria right now. It wouldn't be fun to be living in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. You know, it's not, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, now, you know, we're seeing, which I'd kind of predicted, which is why I was like screaming so much about it, that, you know, even some of the worst projections of like 10 or 15 years ago around climate change are turning out to be, you know, not, not as bad as what's actually happening in terms of, you know, these huge spikes in temperature. So at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves, like, if California or Europe has like 125 degree days, you know what happens to like those agriculture in, the, in that region? Like a lot of a lot of plants are just not going to make it. You know, so you know could could we then go into a situation where there's you know a lot of hunger, you know a lot of a lot of, a lot of desperation. You know and that that doesn't necessarily lead to to a nice situation. You know. Yes, yes. Sometimes you know I'm I'm familiar with Christopher Bash, and sometimes I feel that this idea of the idea of the apocalypse as a rebirth mm-hmm. might create a sense of um, disengagement mm-hmm. and um, so if if you know are we going to wait for the breakdown or what what are we supposed to do to facilitate this this shift to a more uh, yeah well, i mean I, I gave it my best shot like i, I you know created a company evolver i had a whole vision of how you could have like a combination of like a media network and and a social movement and you know kind of you know try to stimulate self-organizing local communities that were you know learning about all these transformational practices and actually then beginning to do like permaculture together creating like local currencies uh, also exploring like shamanism and consciousness kind of shifting you know, the focus, yeah, away from kind of like, you know, mind-numbing, you know, entertainment spectacles and so on. And, and then, you know, part of what I learned in my efforts to do that is, yeah, it's just, you know, there's a, so much inertia in the system. And then also there's a psychological situations where people, you know, project onto, when they, when they see you as an authority figure in some way, then they start projecting, they want to like, kind of like take you down or some of them do. 
you know, so it, ju- it just felt, um, you know, both financially and psychologically, like almost uh, I just reached a point where it was impossible and I was like crushed, you know. So, you know, I, I've, I've had to step back and be like, well, you know, maybe we're not going to save the world. You know, I, I don't, you know, I still think that idea is great. Like we would need kind of, you know, media slash social network that was designed to both give people a lot of great new information, but then also give them like the tools so that they could rebuild their local communities. I mean, I think it's quite possible that in the near, we're already seeing it, right? It's happened through COVID. Like people aren't going to be traveling as much. You know, we're always seeing, you know, it's like, I mean, it's kind of weird. I mean, I don't really quite understand, I don't quite understand why they're making it so hard for like Europeans and Americans to visit each other anymore. It feels a little bit excessive. Like, I mean, we can get into like the, whether there's like conspiratorial elements or whether it's simply just cumbersome bureaucracies, they don't know what to do or something. But I feel that it's like a foreshadowing of a time when, yeah, we're not going to be maybe traveling so much. Like, I mean, um, the, 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 you know, the reality of it is, is that we're not addressing the ecological emergency. And, um, you know, if, if we seriously wanted to take a shot at doing that, everybody would have to accept, you know, huge restrictions on their Super lifestyle for, for, you know, several decades while the planet was somehow rebalanced itself. You know, it would have to be like a, a, you know, a long time out. And we saw, you know, a short time out with this COVID thing. But we, you know, it's hard to imagine a long time out. And, and in some ways, you know, governments would actually be necessary to like move resources around, to like rescue different populations and so on. So, yeah, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, emergencies also create new circumstances, you know, like the Second World War. Suddenly the U.S. Uh, redirected all of its factory production and taxed the wealthy at like 93%. You might not like that idea so much, but, you know, it did happen and, and it allowed for this like, you know, everybody felt they were part of a common cause. I mean, that's actually something I've kind of liked about the COVID thing in New York. Like, like uh, you do feel that people have this sort of more of a commonality, like a sense of like, we're all in this together somehow. So, so maybe that's a foreshadowing of something good, you know, that, that'll emerge uh, in the future. Interesting. And what do you think about, you know, there are communities like in Ibiza or Bali or Goa or Tulum, where there's a little bit of a resurgence of what some historians call the Ulysian mysteries, where in Greece for a few hundred years there were like these yearly ceremonies around this substance um, similar to the ergot fungus, which is similar to LSD. And is it possible that this kind of, 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 of ceremonies create a morphogenetic field that then would create an expansion of consciousness that can accelerate or, or is just esoteric stuff I don't know what too much what to believe um, I mean you know spending time in Tulum I ended up getting you know kind of um, what's the right word I mean you know almost like depressed I guess at what I saw there I mean yeah it felt like um, a certain kind of kind of neo-shamanic spirituality has become like a new like comfort zone for you know people of like you know privilege and culture and, and beauty and it becomes a little bit of like its own little bubble. Like a spiritual materialism sort of situation. Yeah, I don't know, kind of. And it's like, I mean, for instance, like in Tulum, people were like, like doing all these ceremonies, but yet the, you know, the, not only is the environment there going to hell, but the, nobody's, you know, looking after the indigenous people, that they're, they're kind of co-opting the symbols of the Maya and the, the language and stuff. And yet the Maya are like the worst paid people in the hotels and you know, the indigenous cultures never have title to their lands. They were just living on the lands. So they're the expendable ones. Like when they want to build a hotel or development, if there's a bunch of indigenous communities living there, you just kick them out. You know, they don't really have any recourse. 
So I, I just began to feel that um, this whole kind of neo-Burning Man, neo-spiritual shamanic movement doesn't really, um, it's more just like an elitist thrill-seeking. It's not, it's not really doing much of any value. I, I mean, I'd love to have a different perspective, but um, yeah. So energetically, you don't believe that there can be a ripple effect on the psyche, on the collective consciousness? I don't know. It, it, it feels like it leads to a, a, a lot of insularity. You know, people are like, oh, like we have the good thing and we're like special because we've got the shaman from Peru and, you know, we're doing this together. It just, I don't know. It's, it's like, um, I don't even, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't even, I, yeah, so um, uh, I feel less uh, drawn to it right now. Yeah. 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 The, the problem I feel that um, with the psychedelic, the medicalization of psychedelic and also with this um, explosion of, of shamanism, there's always a diffi- the difficulties to integrate with the, um, with the game theory, you know, this, this idea that um, John Nash won a Nobel Prize on game theory, this idea that, you know, in this game there's going to be an asshole and, and, and it'd rather be me. Yeah. So, so this has been affected, you know, the medicalization of psychedelic, the fact that company are the now... Corporatization of psychedelics, yeah. yeah. In, people have been in competition to, to copyright a certain type of usage. So... Yeah, it's such a drag. I mean, I mean... Um, it's funny because when I, when I trace back, I mean, obviously Maps is amazing, and there was the Horizon Conference in New York, but I, but I, I never really liked how they um, they really. I mean, I think they were trying to figure out how to get you know psychedelics accepted by the mainstream. So there was sort of this 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 idea that you kind of like had to get rid of like the paranormal stuff and like the the occult stuff and the telepathic stuff and just focus on the fact that it's like you know there's like measurable benefits for people through like it's like a therapy or something. But for me, that was such a, you know, I, and it's kind of ironic because in a way, like I, I, I had to step back from psychedelics. I think they had some like negative effects on my character over time. And I never actually did the therapeutic uh, route with it, which, you know, maybe maybe I probably should have or something. But I, I still feel that, uh, you know, this this sort of therapy model, the medicalization model is a way it's, it's a way of containing uh, the discourse around, around psychedelics and kind of uh, uh, limiting the potential of, of of what you know might might be possible. I mean, I mean, most people who have profound psychedelic experiences, you know, will also admit to having like profound paranormal experiences, you know, and and um, stuff that can happen that's just like totally outside the box. And that that for me is like an edge that I find really really uh, fascinating. You know, we we go back to the problem of the reductionist. Um yeah, it had to, it had to be fit. It had to be fit into the game theory model yeah. of the society in a way. And al- and also this, the, the health system is designed to address one pathology in a very reductionist way. So you it can be accepted. You can yeah. get the grant. You can get the research, and you can get the one pill. And that so for yeah. the medicalization. That's the path that uh, the company have to take with their limits. Yeah, and it's like it's it, it just feels a little creepy because you could imagine a situation where you have somebody like, you know, Peter Thiel and these other guys who are going to create like you know the the Amazon or the Uber of psychedelics. So they'll end up with a sort of monopoly situation like Amazon or Facebook, where they'll be the ones who are determining kind of the set and setting for the majority of people. I mean, obviously there are other social networks besides Facebook. You can buy a book somewhere besides Amazon, but, but you know, they become like the, the massive umbrella. So that, that's my fear with the psychedelic movement. It's good. And, and that could also become very like Brave New Worldish. you know, yeah. like they'll be like, 
you know, a soma for this the, and the know, elite. What's that? The soma. Well, it the could elite. even be for the masses, but it, it's um, it'll just support the current system of inequality. You know, what I'm hearing now that the, the medicalization of psychedelic is really happening now, right? So maps expect MDMA to be legal for licensed psychotherapies by next year, and then psilocybin follow maybe a year after. So that's it's, it's really happened now. So the next up application of, of these compounds can be more for ontological inquiry mm-hmm. to find its own purpose. And, and you know, because, as you know, we have a little bit of a reputation of, of psychedelic producer in my case. So I hear and people ask me a recommendation for shaman and I see pocket of this kind of practice popping up a little everywhere in Europe and, um, and in America not just for addressing depression, anxiety, and PTSD, but for people looking for meaning. And so this is, I think it's a good development, um, this application of, of, of purpose. And then the next application maybe for transcendence. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, changing. I mean, it's definitely interesting. It's, I mean, you know, things, things in, in life are like, you know, often ambiguous. Like they have good and bad sides to it. And it's like, you know, what's happening with psychedelics is really very fascinating. I mean, you know, when I wrote or Breaking Open the Head, which came out in 2002... I wouldn't have imagined uh, this like massive growth of like neo shamanism and then the sort of corporatization of psychedelics and yeah it's it's quite yeah. quite interesting. It's very it's becoming super mainstream. There yeah. is a major TV show now with the called Nine Identical Stranger with Nicole Kidman who runs a wellness center. Okay. For ten days she put together nine people and then she microdosed psilocybin. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so it's really so. What about um, another topic that you were the first to, to talk about, which is very controversial, is this idea of uh, consensual non-monogamy. Mm-hmm. So how has been your... Um, you were the first one to talk about that already many years ago, and, and that also in mainstream, there's more and more uh, movie and books on this idea that uh, it's very difficult to find one person that can be, for the rest of your life, your companion, your best friend, your confidant, the co-parenting, sharing a bank account, sharing a mortgage, it's putting a lot of pressure in one person. Mm-hmm. And um, marriage came from a Judeo-Christian morality that is a little bit fading. So what do you think is the future for, for sex, love, desire, and relationship? Do you see, in, like in psychedelics, do you see this approach to love and relationship uh, spreading? Or... Um, Ah, uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, um, you know, the, the experiment that I found most interesting was this community called Tamara in Portugal. And, um, but, you know, they're, they're very radical and they, they were kind of, um, and, you know, it's still going strong. It's like 350 people or something. But, you know, it started, it was like Germans who, you know, maybe been, you know, gone through their childhood at the end of the Second World War and were seeing the, the wreckage of uh, Nazism and so on. And, um, They and then were part of the 60s. And they were trying to figure out why the um, kind of uh, movements of the 60s didn't yield like, you know, a great utopian, the promise that, that was. And, and, and when they started to analyze it, they actually began to realize that sex and love was at the core of it. There was like jealousy, possessiveness, envy that um, led to the breakdown of like communities or like uh, left wing movements and so on. So they felt that they needed to kind of, um, you know, focus on that question first. Like you couldn't actually build a healthy human society unless you addressed 
the question of like love and you know erotic satisfaction and so on and yeah i mean for me it's like it, it's um and so 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 i mean there it's like it's very rigid in a way but it's also they've set up a structure that allows for a lot of experiment you know so like people there I'm sure younger people have like somebody in the group in the community who's their kind of love advisor and they can even go to a fantasy with a fantasy they can say like you know i'd love to make love with somebody and i'll be blindfolded and i'll never know who that person was and if your advisor thinks that's a good idea for you they'll set it up or if you're or if you're like you know, I'm very attracted to Juliet, but I, I don't have a room for a relationship, and I would love to have a sexual contact with her, but I'm, you know, I'm too shy to talk to her. You know, if, if your, your counselor could go and intercede for you, and, just, and, you know, and that idea of just having a sexual contact without it necessarily being like an emotional relationship, you know, is also something. So, you know, it's kind of a form of communism there. I mean, we're seeing, you know, all sorts of things happening in the relationship world. I mean, obviously the effect of like social media and online dating, I mean... Um, I feel like with the younger generation, there's all sorts of like, you know, breakdowns, like kids in their 20s, I think are, um, and maybe that's, you know, the morphogenetic field, you know, has just strengthened for it, you know, seem to be like much more fine with like open relationships with, you know, different different models and so on. So yeah, I think there's a lot of change happening. But I mean, um, I loved the sort of discipline and the rigor of, of uh, Tamara and how, how they saw kind of this, uh, you know, liberation of Eros as... Um, like a crucial component of bringing out, like bringing like a true liberation of society. Like, yeah, I used to be really, well, I still am. Herbert Marcuse, who wrote like um, One Dimensional Man and Eros and Civilization. You know, he, he thought in the 50s, you know, when it was very repressed, that if you could, you know, have a, you know, sexual liberation, that would lead to, you know, transformation of society and, and so on. And then when the 60s happened and there was the sexual liberation, then he was kind of disappointed because it didn't actually lead to the dominant structure. So he, you know, changing. So he, he coined a term called repressive desublimation, uh, which was basically like, um, you know, there was sublimation was this idea from Freud of like, you know, instead of having sex, we end up like building cathedrals or, you know, businesses or whatever. We, 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 we focus our sexual energy on, you know, doing things for society or, you know, you know, we have to, you know, to survive. Uh, so he, he said that we've had a, we'd had like a desublimation in, in the 70s, 1670s, but it ended up being repressive because it was re-enfolded back into these structures of, of dominance. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the, the, you know, the liberation of love and eros and sexuality is like an incomplete process. And yeah, we don't really have a roadmap for it. I mean, you know, but, you know, a lot of things are actually, you know, obviously happening in, you know, big cities. You know, you have like Tinder, you have like sugar ba- da- daddy, sugar baby relationships. You know, they're not necessarily healthy, but they're, they're pointing towards kind of like the breaking up of these structures. And, and then people do have, have more choice. I mean, in particular when, when they're young, you know. Is it possible that the new map of, of sexuality for the third millennium could be based on the on Tantra? Yeah, I think that would have to be a piece of it, you know, and then, and then I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I said means different things. So I, my main, I know you've done a number of Tantra workshops, but I did uh, Ista, and I, I found it like uh, very challenging, but but also very profound. Like I'd, I'd like to do another experience like that. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, what what does Tantra mean in terms of people's lived experience? I mean. Instead of just getting drunk and, you know, making love, you, you know, more conscious, you move slower, you eye gaze. I mean, but but then, you know, is it actually more because there's like neo-tantra, which is still very much about pleasure. But then if you read people like, you know, very controversial, you know, occult writer Julius Evola, you know, he, he said actually the, the purpose of tantra was not to, uh, 
you know, enhance pleasure. You know, it was actually to, to sort of, uh, you know, cauterize the, the, you know, the egoic impulse, you know, u- using sexual energy as a way to like break through the ego. And so I, I don't really see that being done in like the modern Western Tantra. It feels like actually people like, like you know, even like the Ista teachers I felt had kind of very addictive complexes around, around sexuality. So it didn't necessarily feel, even though they were having multiple partners and had, you know, and had figured out, you know, different techniques and so on, it didn't necessarily feel like liberation. It, it felt like an, another, another layers of addiction, you know. My interpretation of Tantra is a way to transcend using that energy and then a way to, to use sexuality in a more um, altruistic way. So seeing as uh, sexuality as almost a form of service. Mm-hmm. So more... A form of giving than 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 taking. So, you know, Mar- Margot Anand, uh, this tantra tantra teacher and French tantra teacher, you say that, you know, the Enlightenment philosophy will tell you not to look below the waist, yeah, because it's dangerous. And I think that you know this form of tantra, neo tantra, either from teacher from from the Veda, from India, or teacher from 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 Latsu, from China, I think they are. They, they create a mo- moment of presence, which is then can focus the attention more on, on finding yourself than losing yourself, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. it makes any sense. Yeah. So, again, in Ibiza and in some of these more um, alternative places. But, I mean, you know, traditionally, like, Eastern Tantra wasn't even something you would do with, like, your wife or your husband. You know, it would be like you'd have, like, a Tantrika. I mean, it would be like a different relationship, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not about you know it's just, it's just about something else. Yeah, and but I liked what you said about service. I mean that's something that in, in Tamara they actually built into their structure. So I mean, you know, so like um, you know people have tend to multi partner relationships there. Like maybe you you know you, you go move there in your twenties or thirties. You have a significant relationship, but then the energy begins to diminish or the sexual attraction. And then you might have other relationships, but there you don't forfeit that initial, you know, partnership necessarily. But I mean, because, yeah, because we're, we have this, you know, strong orientation towards, yeah, as you said, the partner is supposed to be everything, so she's supposed to be, or he is supposed to be your best friend, you know, your your lover, your tent. I mean, it's a lot to put into that, you know, basket, you know. And can you elaborate a little bit on this concept of the morphogenetic field? You know, you, you mentioned it saying that, um, you know, this, this new form of being together non-exclusively, but but consensually and ethically has been around now for a few years. So you mentioned that because of the morphogenetic field, it may be spreading. Can you elaborate on this concept? I think it's interesting. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's, the, that's the, 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 you know, the model of change that Tamara is holding. Um, and um, I mean, I, I don't think the idea, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it originated from Rupert Sheldrake, but he's become the main proponent of it. The idea is that... Um, I mean, Sheldrake's idea is that, you know, there aren't really fixed laws in nature, that this idea that nature has fixed laws is actually just an idea of the human mind. And he actually looks at, you know, different constants, like the speed of light, and he proposes they're actually not quite as constant as we think. And he says that actually, uh, you know, it's not about, you know, laws, which, as I said, is like comes from jurisprudence, which comes more from the Christian idea of like God and the, you know, holy court of angels or something. But it's more like patterns, like, like nature's you know, patterns and principles, patterns that become more coherent over time. So they begin to feel like fixed laws. So you have like a group of crystal, you know, molecules that are assembled and that leads to a crystal formation. So that creates like a new morphogenic 
pattern for crystal formation. Uh, it's the theory of like formative causation. So then when that happens a number of times, then it feels like a law because it's so, it's so consistent, coherent, but actually it's just a pattern that's like self-reinforced. So he, he thinks this explains a lot of things like, you know, embryo development. like, uh, you know, the DNA in every cell is the same. So how do the, the, the cells know to differentiate into all of these organs, you know, like ears and, and hearts and so on. He, he thinks that the, the, the information is actually contained in these like invisible morphogenic fields, you know, which I guess, you know, may, maybe could be considered something like quantum phenomena or something like that. So and he thinks it's not just true for uh, natural phenomena, but also for social phenomena or for ideas. So he's done studies where like there's a you know crossword puzzle that's really hard and, you know, a few people do it. It takes them hours, but the next group of people can do it in like an hour. And then the next bigger group can do it in like 15 minutes. So it, it becomes easier and easier you know, the same thing with like a, you know, species, uh, like a monkey develops a way to use a tool and then all the monkeys on that island are able to do it. But then even the monkeys across the world, the same monkeys on a different island, you know, thousands of miles away are suddenly able to use a tool in that way. So, yeah, so something like a new, a new pattern for human relationships, um, you know, could, could be something that, that creates a new morphogenic field that, that then becomes other people can beam into it more easily. Like a form of um, cosmic memory bank, exactly, where you can yeah. store stuff and that other people can access subconsciously. Yeah, very interesting. Um, what about more practical issues like you know our democracy and blockchain technology and participatory democracy? Do you think that um, do you see this idea of of the chain and um, decentralized technology with with, with blockchain to revolutionize our society in in terms of creating you know digital scarcity and being able to um, disintermediate the government and maybe even the FDA maybe even the, the SEC what do you what do you think about that have you thought about that yeah I mean I actually you know uh, wrote about that a bit in, in one of my books how soon is now phenomena is sort of complex and often kind of ambiguous I mean um, so far I, I almost feel like even though I'm like I've tentatively, you know, put a little bit of money into crypto, I, I almost feel that I still don't really understand what's happening because, um, and a lot of the arguments for it seem quite weak. Like, I, you know, you know, Nora Rubini, like he's had these discussions against uh, crypto uh, with some of the major players. And actually his arguments are, seem to be very strong. I mean, so, uh, you know, Bitcoin is a store of digital value. You can look at these images from around the world of these, these uh, Bitcoin mining farms that are using as much energy as a whole country. It, it almost feels like a form of, you know, insanity, you know, because, um, you know, there and, and then the argument that, uh, you know, my friend of mine just wrote an article and he's like, well, you know, Bitcoin is just like the dollar, like the dollar doesn't have any anything backing it. So Bitcoin is, you know, why, why what's any difference with a crypto? But I actually don't think that argument stands up because actually the dollar has a lot backing it. I mean, it has like, you know, highways, schools, infrastructure, institutions, military you know, there, I mean, you know, yes, we're probably, you know, too much in debt and so on. So I don't know, I kind of, um, a lot of the uh, crypto ideology supports a very kind of libertarian, kind of self-interested, privacy-oriented, like everyone has private wealth and, you know, government should be uh, removed. And, and then you'd have just people hiring their own, like, security forces, I guess. I don't know, it, it doesn't really seem like a very pleasant vision. But, but, but I, I mean... You know, in, in theory, I mean, you know, the, the, the problem we have, you know, which I've written about a lot is that um, the economic system, the way the way it just evolved, 
you know, it doesn't really account for externalities, you know, so, and, and basically corporations who are trading in the stock market, the public traded companies, you know, have a, have a fiduciary responsibility to, you know, maximize shareholder value, which means just maximize financial profit. So that means they have to behave to do that. So that means that like, if you're an energy company, like British Petroleum, you know, of course, you're going to like cut you know, you're kind of, um, you know, what you're doing in the Gulf of Mexico and to the point there's like some huge spill or, you know, a pharmaceutical company will re- release a product like Viox because they've done the, you know, the stats. And even though it's going to cause a lot of heart attacks and kill a lot of people, it's still going to make them more money and they'll, and they'll find a way to avoid the liability or tobacco companies. And so we see over and over again that um, because the, the economic system really uh, is oriented towards you know, only financial return, then the companies are, are, are sort of forced, they're almost like robots, they have to behave like psychopaths, you know, and, you know, they don't support the health of local communities or local ecosystems. And so, you know, for me, it's like a system design problem, like, you know, yeah, yeah people can do philanthropy, like you could help try to help this tribe or help, you know, these albinos and, you know, Mount Everest or whatever, wasn't that what Anton was doing? But it's like, yeah, but the system itself is oriented towards like exploitation and, and domination in, in its intrinsic logic. So, so we would actually have to address that. Now, how do you address something like that? I don't know. You'd have to like get you know people aware of the fact that it's like a fundamental emergency because a system that's based on just you know extracting financial value and increasing is is is, is coming into direct conflict with the life support systems. Of the planet, or already has, you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the the crypto guys would say that that's exactly what you can use this cryptocurrency for, where you know you have, you have the the value of the currency, which is linked not just to the bottom line, but to some externalities that you can mine in the contract of the currency. So it's a little bit like this idea of the public corporation, like Maps is doing, where you have an investors on a public corporation, their target is profit but also um, increase awareness on, on the psychedelics or a certain number of um, licensing therapists or for example we're doing something in, in Ibiza with regenerative agriculture where we take charitable donation and the donors will measure the outcome of this venture not just with profit but with three eco targets the water retention the CO2 absorption and the creation of uh, organic matter and so and that's going to be a blockchain thing or a crypto thing? For now, it's not just going to be... Yeah, that would be great. Like if, yeah. that, if that was then became like a coin and people could invest into it or something. That, that's exactly. that's the promise. Yeah. And But I've been hearing about that promise for like a number of years now. And I haven't like when I actually see, you know, like what crypto is doing in the world. So far, I don't really see the ecological or social benefit, kind of the opposite. I mean, it's allowed for... You know, it, it's not decreasing wealth inequality. It allowed for cl- cunning, mainly white, mainly men who had an engineering background to make a huge, extract a huge amount of money uh, because they got in there early and they understood, you know, the dynamics of this kind of stuff or something. You know, I, and, and then they moved to, a lot of them moved to Puerto Rico where they're, you know, hiding their money from taxes or whatever. You know, nothing about it to me is really, you know, and then they talk about, you know, these, so other, these other subjects. The judgment but, is out. What's that? The judgment is out. Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, it's, um, you know, everybody wants to, you know, try to make themselves feel good about themselves. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and, uh, and another hot topic in this country is um, gender politics and gender identity. My son goes to a very politically correct uh, college in the East Coast, in uh, Connecticut, Wesleyan. And oh, he's going to Wesleyan? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's probably. 
And you went to Wesleyan? Yeah, in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. oh nice. Um, but you know, it's it, it, it's considered white power. It's, yeah, he has, to, he has to be very careful how he talks to certain people, and um, and um, so let me ask you a very direct question. You know how there is this difference between um, a quality of outcome of a quality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, I'm going to try to simplify. So the, the two arguments goes like that. Um, you know, like people like Sam Harris believe that you need um, equality of opportunity, but you cannot pretend equality of outcome because, for example, for boards at university or for boards at co- a corporation, you want to have, give the same opportunity to everybody, but ultimately the board will be chosen based of merit and skills. Whereas, you know, what you can call the woke movement would like to see equality of outcome. Mm-hmm. Bringing this idea of reparation, mm-hmm. but so well, reparation ha- is a different thing. So, but do you think that don't you think that race should be something like the color of your hair? You know, if you have blue hair or yellow hair or, or brown hair, it doesn't really matter. So, would you really have a quota per race in boards of corporation or university where you need to fill the quota of Asian Latinos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess I don't feel super attracted to the quota model, but but I do kind of understand that like um, you know you're dealing with a situation. I think I think African Americans like thirteen percent of the population. It's not like is it is it, le- is it around? It's not that much, I think. But um, you know you're, you're dealing with a history of like you know multi generational you know physical and psychological violence, you know which which has led to people feeling profoundly disempowered and. You know, then they still get you know beaten up and imprisoned, you know, first and so on, or they're disenfranchised from the vote, or they make some little mistake when they're a teenager, they're never allowed to vote again in Florida or whatever. So, um, you know, it, it it is a crap system uh, for them, you know, and yeah, I mean, I and and it is true that um, you know our European and American hegemony is a result of uh, imperialism and colonialism that, um, you know, was originally kind of military and then became, you know, based on economic means, like, um, like I was living in Mexico, like, well, you know, why, why is Mexico so cheap for Americans? It's because um, World Trade Organization, uh, is that the one, the big economic body that issues loans? Like, so, so, you know, a number of times they issued these huge loans. The World Bank. World Bank, exactly. That's what it is, World Bank to Mexico. And when Mexico defaulted, which they kind of could have predicted because they had a corrupt government and the money gets siphoned off, then they're like, okay, well, now you have to like privatize your, your industries, you have to cut your social services. So twice, you know, the Mexico, you know, which is a very resource-rich cult country that could be totally as successful as like the U.S. or, or you know, Germany or Italy or whatever, was forced to reduce the standard of living for people like 25%, you know. So, yeah, so the problem is that we're, we are dealing with these, you know, legacies of you know, many, many forms of exploitation and domination that have been intricately devised by the people who had the power. Uh, I don't like the quota system, but but I do understand that, um, you know, and I feel like a lot of the energy of the left has gotten kind of trapped in uh, this woke identity politics stuff that, that to me is like kind of tangential and feels kind of... Um, too, I don't know. It's, it's not my thing. It's like feels like too cultural. Like you know, uh, it's it's all it's all based on these like signif- cultural signifiers and, and so on. Um, but um, you know, I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, I love like someone like Richard Wolff, who's a you know left wing 
sort of economist and, and his analysis. I mean, that's where I learned about this, the Mexican, you know, debt crisis and so on. You know, that, that to me is the, the reality of our, of our global situation, you know. And um, yeah, so Europe and America have, you know, ma- maintained a much higher standard of living by, you know, utilizing the tools of, of uh, you know, economic control and, and, and so on. So, um, and, you know, a lot of the people who weren't part of the calculus of power you know, feel disempowered, disenfranchised, stomped on, you know, and in fact they are, you know, so, you know, obviously if, if we were to ever ha- try to have a just society, we would have to figure out some way to rebalance that. And maybe this quota idea is like an initial sort of crude way, but it does, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't rock my world, world either. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So we've been together for almost an hour. Um, I know you said you don't like to give advice, but um, what advice do you have for for these, um, you know, sophomore or uh, kids that just starting college, like my son, like your daughter, and are a bit lost in terms of what you know, what what major, what what kind of you know, this the prospect for for a profession looks very bleak now. They lost, you know, when I when I was um, when I went to university, there was still. The idea of, 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 of finance and entrepreneurship was still very appealing. Now, for some of those kids, they think that the, the system is like a gigantic Ponzi scheme. Yeah, which it is. Which it and is. we know. I mean, look at the 2008 financial crash. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you know, those guys were celebrating as they like got huge advances, even though everybody lost their homes and so on. And COVID, same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, but so, so Yuval Arari says, for example, that because of who I also don't like so much but go ahead <laughs> because I know I, I quote him because um, no he's like the mainstream neoliberal apologist yeah. like he's Obama's like guy you know? I, I, I resonate with, <laughs> with, with, his, with his idea that with artificial intelligence um, we're gonna need you know specialization in ethics and philosophy yeah, and that's so funny exactly that's what I've been trying to sell my daughter on the idea of becoming a uh, technology ethicist mm-hmm. Um, which I think she would be, she would, but she's not interested. I mean, you know, normally whatever you try to tell your kids to do, they're not going to do it. Yeah, yeah. but you know, <laughs> technology ethicist. I mean, what you already was saying was saying that they should make ethical courses compulsory for programmers. Mm-hmm. So if you are a computer programmer on MIT or something, yeah. As soon as somebody says should, it's like it's like the jigs up. <laughs> <laughs> so, which advice do you have for kids that are finishing school and going to university? How do they choose what to study? Um, well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, you know, I guess in a way, like I, I, I tried to encourage my daughter to, you know, maybe do more sort of ecological subject matter. But, you know, she's tilted in the direction of, you know, me and my mother towards like English and literature and so on. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, also, I guess, yeah, people should follow their bliss, right? Like, um, you know, I mean, you, you try to stop people from doing that. It's not so nice. But you know, I, I do think it's that... difficult to find this belief. Uh, well, on the other hand, no, because um, what I'm discovering is that um, you, there are actually a lot of new creative opportunities, um, but they're, you know, it's possible to, like, build your own kind of reality through the internet. Like, in a, in a way, you can create your own, you know, hub, your own platform, you know, if you, if you have a message, I mean, as a creative person, you know, or you can create your own blockchain, or, you know, I mean... You know, the, the, you know, or NFT. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of creativity to be explored in, in a lot of these new areas, you know, or, you know, if you decide that you want to like create a community of the future, you know, you could probably find a way to contribute to one or start one, you know, so, so, 
Yeah, but I think like what's less, um, you know, it's probably less of value is going to be trying to do like entry level jobs and these kind of legacy companies and so on. It's more about like flexibility and, and creativity and, and um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, so it's kind of good in a way. I mean, it could be an exciting time to be a young person if, if, you're, if you're open to untraditional and unorthodox approaches, you know. Yes. Thank you very much. Is there um, anything you want to leave the Mango TV audience with? Yeah, I mean, if they, I've been doing these courses at the liminalinstitute.com and... Um, They're still in time to sign up for the consciousness? When is this running? It's running. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 they're in time. Yeah, or other ones. I mean, they're all, the, other, the older ones are also there as legacies. And then I have a um, newsletter on Substack. They can, I don't know the exact URL, but if they look up my name in Substack, they can join the newsletter yes. and hear more of my sagacious wisdom. Perfect. Thank you very much for your time and we'll be back on some more esoteric more esoteric topics. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Coca-Sunara is Sunara in tea. Coca-Sunara is Sunara in tea. Coca-Sunara is Sunara in tea.